now that I got my mic going. Um, it's good to be back, y'all. It really is. Uh, thank you so much for uh, what you have blessed us with and privileged us with. And we just ask that, uh, well, uh, we should ask the Lord that he would bless us this evening for that, that we're able to come before you, uh, or that we're able to come together during this time. Um, brothers, let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are the one true God who is able to comfort our souls, who is able to lead us, direct us, strengthen us, grow us as his church. But Lord, we thank you that you are a God who gives us peace and directs us even in the midst of the, the, the tough and difficult times. Lord, please be with all those, uh, as our pastors have mentioned, and Lord, be with us this evening. We ask this in your son's name. Amen. All right, now I'm ready to preach. Brothers, it's good to be back uh, again with you. Uh, I just want to give you a little bit of a warning. Uh, this sermon is going to sound a bit more like a business meeting than an actual sermon, so apologize in advance. Uh, nevertheless, God still blesses his people through his word, no matter how pitiful the preacher is. Amen? Amen. Uh, with that said, we're going to have uh, Philippians 4 as our main text. Um, we'll also be in Matthew 28, but I'll tell you where, uh, when we'll get there. But Philippians 4 is our main text. And we'll start at verse 4 and end at verse 9. This is Paul speaking in Philippians 4, verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and have heard and seen in me, practice these things. And the God of peace will be with you. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. So brothers, I have uh, some more things to say next week as we conclude our thoughts on the Ten Commandments. But for tonight, since it's the first night back, um, and you know this is kind of a one-off sermon, uh, I want to pause the, the Ten Commandments study uh, just to ponder upon some issues that will become more and more relevant to us in the coming weeks and months. A sermon like this should be rare because I do believe in the regular intake of systematic biblical sermons uh, that they should characterize the church. But every now and then, a pointed focused study on a particular issue 
may be needed, especially as we have new horizons quickly approaching our church. I have three issues or questions, you could say, three issues, questions for the church to, to think about tonight. But for my goal tonight is not to provide an answer to these questions or to these issues. I have no intention of providing any kind of answer. I feel very weird being a preacher saying that right now. My goal is not to give you uh, this great charge of what direction we need to go or what even I think is best for us as a church. The pulpit is not a place for my opinion, but it is for God's word, for his truth. So after I I prompted us to these open-ended questions that we're going to look at, these issues, we'll end with some devotional thoughts that Paul presents in Philippians 4. So we'll have more of a uh, think about these things and then let's really think about these things kind of moment tonight. So with that said, I have three or so issues that I will hope will goad us uh, to go home thinking and meditate upon for the coming future. That said, before we get into the three main issues, I want to remind ourselves of a very good definition or just a biblical definition of what the church is and what the church's mission is. Our three issues pertain to the church, our church. So we should reflect briefly on what the church is and what it does. Biblically speaking, the church is the visible, locally gathered, covenanted body of believers. We as a community of believers constitute our way, ourselves in this way because God has revealed this practice for us in his word. We gather together because God says so. Just as believers are commanded in the scriptures to live, to live lives of holiness and continue dependence upon the gospel of Christ, we are also called by our God to assemble as the holy and embodied citizens of Christ's heavenly kingdom. To summarize the Bible's teaching on the church, we can define the church in various ways. The church is the kingdom of God on earth. The church is God's elect people in Christ. Or the church is the professing body of Christ. All of these are good and biblical definitions, but to bring it closer home to us, the local church is the unique expressions, expression of God's gathered saints in a particular time, region, and culture in God's world. And we at Grace fit this category. But what's our mission? Well, what's the mission of Christ's church overall? The Christ, uh, Christ's universal church, what's its mission? And this is a very easy answer. Everyone, if you would, please open to Matthew 28. Matthew 28. This is right before his ascension, uh, after his resurrection, and his disciples are with him in Galilee uh, near the mountains. And when they, verse 17 of Matthew 28, and when they, the disciples, saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, to give them an anecdote to that doubt, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, And behold, I am with you, with you always to the end 
of the age. Verses 19 to 20 is what we could really call the mission statement of the church. Of this church where hopefully the Bible-believing church down the road. From this text, we see that Christ's mission is that we be engaged in building or growing the church, strengthening the church in the knowledge of who God is and what he has done, and faithfully believing and practicing his word. And all this is done for his glory. So to summarize, the church's mission as Christ's covenant people is to glorify God by growing as Christ commanded, to be strengthened as Christ has has commanded, and to do as Christ has commanded. Now we can expand those out. We can, uh, we, there are various ways in which we can grow as a body. There are various ways in which uh, Christ strengthens us for his ministry. And there are plenty of things that God has called us to believe and practice. But the broad overarching purpose for this church, for all of God's church, is to grow, to be strengthened, and to do as Christ has commanded for his glory. What I've stated is simple bread and butter Christianity. There should be no qualms with Christ being glorified by his church, by growing, strengthening, and doing his commands. We should understand this. This is why we exist. We exist to grow Christ's kingdom. We exist to be strengthened in the knowledge of who God is. And we exist to do what Christ has commanded. This is what we do as God's covenanted, holy, blood-brought people. Amen? This is who we are. This is what we do. So with this definition and purpose of the church refreshed in our minds, I want to begin to meditate, meditate upon three issues that are already upon us or soon approaching as a church. To give some context of these three issues, it might be helpful to give an illustration. So forgive me if this is a rough one. Brothers, I like to think of myself as a go-with-the-flow kind of guy. But if you ask my wife that, and as she will lovingly remind me, that is simply not true. For me, I am content wherever the wind blows until it becomes turbulent, until some sudden change knocks me off course. Growing up every year, my church youth group would visit the Ocoee River in Tennessee. Are you familiar with this river? It's, uh, everyone who's ever done some white water rafting is very familiar with this river, especially if you're in youth group. Amen? Amen. For nearly seven years of my life, I rode the lower portion of the Ocoee. So by my final year, it was a breeze and a delightful time to be on this river. Even though it was a little hard at first, even though it was a little bit difficult, I really enjoyed myself that last year. I knew the curves. I knew which rapids to look out for. I knew where and how to follow that river. But when I was older, I visited the river again. But instead of the lower river, I was on the upper river. Not good. Every rapid was new. The flow of the river was not natural to me. I did not know this river. My once beloved relaxing hobby became a path in an afternoon of dangerous close calls and too many cuts and bruises and a lot of embarrassment. Because I was ill-prepared, going with the flow was not an option for me. 
Brothers, I would imagine that many of us are like this with the church. With what we know, it is comfortable. Yeah, there's work involved, sure. But this work is familiar. We know the dynamics of the relationships of the church. We know our expectations as members of this church. We know the rhythms and patterns of our church in her ministries. We know the flow. But brothers, as I want us to see tonight, we are no longer on the lower river. We are about to begin our journey on the upper river. No longer will we be comfortable with what we are used to. We are to descend upon the unknown. We are soon approaching an impasse of how we at Grace will operate. We, who we are and what our mission is, that is not changing. Let that be heard. Who we are and what we do is not changing. But I think that we should be aware of some coming realities that we, not, that we might not have immediately on our radar. I would argue that there are three issues that we need to be pondering in the coming weeks. And again, I'm not giving my answer. I'm not giving my thoughts. I'm just putting these out here so that we can begin to think together, to reason together. We should begin pondering these things because in the coming months, these issues uh, will mess with our flow as a church. These issues involve our ministry, our leadership, and our culture. Those three. Our ministry, our leadership, and our culture. These are things that we need to be ready to confront, engage in, and prepare ourselves for so that we can do the mission of Christ as outlined in Matthew 28 more effectively and faithfully for the times to come. So first, ministry. This is an issue that we have already been pondering before services shut down because of COVID. As soon as we were about to start getting to know the neighborhood, the pandemic hit. We truly don't have that presence in the neighborhood that we are wanting at this point. There is no real tangible way of ministry and witnessing when the world is crumbling around us. It's just not possible, to be quite honest. Not the way in which we know. The pandemic has caused real frustration for how we would do ministry. But this just means that we need to be eager and ready. Eager and ready for good neighboring and witnessing when the time is right. We need to be prepared for typical evangelism and out, outreach once uh, normalcy sets back in. Once we get back to normal. A regular interaction with the neighborhood needs to be upon our hearts and minds. And we should be praying right now for a fruitful and, uh, fruitful and faithful harvest. We should be eager to see Grace Baptist grow as part of our mission. We should be eager to see this neighborhood become part of us. And we a part of them. But in light of the pandemic and all that has followed, normalcy as we knew it is no longer with us. Normalcy what it once was, is gone. Though many of us have not had to worry about the economic problems of the pandemic, there may be others that have felt this difficulty, possibly in this neighborhood or in the surrounding areas. In our context of the pandemic and all the things that have followed since then, the, the social revolts that have ensued, the questions being asked by our nation, asked to the church, 
These questions have been around for a while, but they're being screamed at us now. What do we do? Even if we are up and running by the end of the year, we don't have the same people in view anymore. We will now have a post-COVID, a post-economic collapse, a post-social revolt people to minister to and to witness to. And on top, of, on top of this, and it's just part of God's good providence, I believe, it's another grueling election year in which people are already exhausted and fragmented from watching unfold. This is difficult for us as well. We are all into this whole mess together. We're worried about the future. We're worried about our children and how they will live in this world. We are worried where providence will take us and how our lives will unfold. We are genuinely worried. People outside of us are worried. They have questions. And they're looking to us, the church, for answers. So brothers, let me ask you a few questions to probe this to us. How are we to effectively minister and witness to these people as Grace Baptist Church? Even in the midst of our own worries, our own concerns, we are still called to serve and witness this community. And our desire to grow as Christ has commanded, we need to ponder how to do that well, especially in light of the new normal of our daily lives. Brothers, I don't have a uh, a perfect answer to this. And even if I did, I don't think it would serve us well. We need to soberly take time to think how we can minister to our neighbors well. I want this issue to be, open, to be an open-ended question so that you can meditate upon it for yourselves. How can you and I and uh, the, the rest of uh, the grace serve and witness to this neighborhood or in our own communities in light of everything that has taken place? How can we be effective servants of the gospel in our day and age? How will this new normal affect our ministries? Ministries, that, uh, practical ministries that we actually have, like Good News Club or the ladies' ministry. What kind of people are we interacting with now? It's very similar to what happened, and I'm almost cautious with saying uh, this comparison, but it's similar to what happened 20 years, uh, 20 or so, or nearly 20 years ago now, is with what happened with the terrorist attacks on 9-11. People had very different questions then. They had very different uh, accusations against the church. They had particular needs that need to be answered then and there. How are we, as Grace Baptists, going to respond? How are we going to serve, and how are we going to proclaim the gospel to these people? We don't have the same people to witness to anymore. It's a very different world out there. Well, I don't have an answer. Have general guidelines. But again, this is kind of a business meeting type situation. How can we better effectively minister to our neighbors, to those who are lost in this neighborhood and in our communities? Brothers, we do need to think about how we are going to respond faithfully. How can we grow when the earth is shifting underneath our feet? God is the one who gives growth to his church. Amen and amen. 
but we still have a responsibility before him to, to minister effectively and faithfully toward his end, towards his mission that he has given us. Let that be upon your mind in the coming weeks. Another issue for us to ponder is leadership. This is weird for me to talk about. Our pastors play a key role in how the church is to be strengthened in the knowledge of who God is and what he has done. And as I said in another sermon back at our Ridgewood location, we will always have Pastor Wynn with us. Amen? Amen. He's not going anywhere. Yes, in a few years he will retire from the main gig, but he's going to be one of our elders. That's how we do it in the proper Reformed Baptist context. He will still be involved in pastoral ministry, either until the day he dies or the Lord comes back. That's all you got. I'm sorry. You got, you got us for a little bit longer. But with Pastor, and Tiago, uh, Pastor Tiago and his family leaving, we as a church will need to begin the process of looking for another elder. Brothers, I've never been in the process of calling an elder or anything like that. So I'm a little excited, but also very nervous of who we will call. The pastor of the church is not the end-all, be-all of the church by no means. The pastor does not make up the sole identity of the church, what we believe or what we are called to. That is not his job. Christ, the actual head pastor, tells us who we are and what we do. Amen? But the elders of a local church do have a profound influence in that they strengthen us in knowing what God's word says and how to accomplish our mission as a church. If God's mission for us is to be strengthened according to God's word, we need to begin pondering what kind of man should come along Pastor Wynn in order for them to aid and strengthen us. Ultimately, it's about serving us that we might serve Christ. That's what pastors are there for. Thank you all both for your hard work in this. Truly, thank you. But brothers, we also have a responsibility to them. The elders of the local church, they do have a profound influence in how we are strengthened in knowing God's word and accomplishing his mission. If God's mission for us is to be strengthened according to God's word, we need to begin pondering what kind of man should come along our fellow pastor here. This is a particularly difficult challenge because, y'all, we're a weird, difficult church. We are. We're strange. We have some oddities about us. I mean, look who's talking to you, right? Not only should we find someone who is confessionally and doctrinally in line with us, we also need someone who can serve us as we are, not necessarily who he wants us to be. Brothers, this is the danger for many young and inexperienced pastors. You have no clue how many times I have heard in seminary my teachers warn us against leading a church as you want them to be versus as they actually are. Too often, an inexperienced pastor makes a wreck of the ministry because they don't have the patience or the gifting to lead us as a people where they need to be or, or as they are. For example... During my time in RTS, I had two friends occupy the same pastoral office in a small country church. 
One of my friends was your star academic type. He was well gifted. He imbibed a professionalism that, that many find alluring. And he faithfully led that little country church until he graduated. But his ministry was not all that successful. After he graduated, my other friend was offered the same position. The second pastor was able to better serve than the first pastor. And the reason is because of this. The second pastor understood the people at the country church better. The second pastor was regarded with more respect because he served the people as they were. He didn't serve in a generic way. He didn't preach at the people. He preached to the people. He, the second pastor, a godly man, both godly men, but this one in particular, a godly individual, and in many eyes, worthless to the rest of churches because he didn't have that veneer about him. But he was a faithful minister to those people because he served them as they were. He became like them that he might serve them all the better. Brothers, he exemplified Christ in this. This is the same as we see in Hebrews 4, is that he became like us yet without sin is that we need pastors who are willing to see us as we are, to become like us, not to mess around with our sin, but actually to lead us through that sin. Brothers, we need this. We don't need someone, some inexperienced pastor to see us as a project until he moves on to something better. We need a pastor who is willing to love and serve us as we are. But... And this is a big but here. We also need to be aware of who we are and how we need to grow. Amen? We need to be aware of who we are and how we need to grow. Both as a body and in our sanctification. One danger that I see among Reformed Baptists of our ilk is their insular nature. What I mean is that there may be a unity in Christian doctrine and practice... But often, Reformed Baptist churches have a propensity to produce and attract carbon copies of what they already are. This is a danger for us as well. Brothers, we need to be a body that is united in doctrine and practice. There is no Christian unity without those things. But often, issues of conscience and characteristics of culture can easily find sway in what we believe about the church and what we do as the church. For example, for us at Grace, all of us are conservative to some degree. The majority of us come from an Anglo-Saxon background and culture. Uh, We're typical uh, southern Mississippians. And most live very comfortable lives in the American context. And brothers, there's nothing wrong with this fact. There's nothing wrong with this fact. But we need to be careful and conscious of how we interact with those who do not fit into our group, into our category. If we are committed to the mission of Christ to make disciples of all nations, and this includes people of different backgrounds or mentalities that are in our nation, then we must be able to become like them and serve them. We need to be able to witness and to serve those who don't look immediately like us or hold to our non-essential beliefs. Brothers, I mention this because we don't do this well. We don't do this well. We don't have good success with outreach 
in discipleship outside of people who are like us. Most who have come into our church have become new members are not because we have been faithful to the Great Commission. It's because in God's good providence towards us, and we should recognize that fact, they found our website. They found our website and wanted more reformed beliefs and practices or something to that effect. These aren't people who have been confronted with the truth of the gospel. These are believers who simply want to join in fellowship with us. Again, this is a blessing and a sign of God's faithfulness to build his church, but is not an indicator of our faithfulness. Our pastors have encouraged us in this and have exemplified this themselves, but we as a body, us guys, we as a body, we have not to the fullest extent followed their lead. Brothers, when deciding for a new elder, we need someone who will love us as we are, but we also need someone who will guide us in who we need to be and to aid us in the Great Commission. We need someone who will strengthen us where we are weak in doing the church's mission, weak in doing Christ's missions for us. I think one reason, brothers, if you can allow me this, I think one reason we are going to miss Tiago and his family is because he is not exactly like us. That's for sure. Tiago has been an excellent mentor to me because he, has const- because he constantly shows me how he has to bend over backwards to understand us as Southerners and as Mississippians. He has exemplified what it means to become like us. He exemplifies the Hebrews for mindset, as both our pastors do. But with Tiago, it's, it's funny because, man, you're Portuguese, brother. You're Portuguese. And to our natural tendencies as Southern conservative Americans, when we hear Portuguese, a lot comes to mind. First, we're reminded that Portugal is indeed a country. I knew that would get a laugh because I knew I wasn't the only one. But after that, we are reminded of things that we deride in our hearts as Americans, right? And almost kind of in a good way. I mean that in a lighthearted way. For example, Tiago, and I'm sorry, the rest of you guys, y'all are European. Ew. That, that's weird. Then there's the whole thing with the small cups of coffee. They don't satisfy my coffee craving, right? Amen? Amen. And then on top of that, Portugal is a socialist country. As a conservative American, that is my worst nightmare. (laughs) But despite all of these things, despite all of these things that would grate against our natural sensibilities, brothers, Tiago and his family has been able to lead us well. Amen? He became like us so that he could serve us. But where Tiago has been a truly a blessing to us as a congregation is where he and Pastor Wynn together have led us. Because he is not immediately like us, he is able to lead us to serve others unlike ourselves. Because he is able to interact with those who are outside of our circle, he has challenged us to do the same. He has challenged us to fight against our natural tendency to become insular in things that are not essential to our faith, things like our cultural practices. 
our conserv conservative Southern Mississippian values that often I do find testimony of the Lord, I guess. I'm sorry about that. Things that I personally find very personal to me and things that I connect with. Brothers, I'm not arguing that we find another Portuguese to become our new pastor. By no means. I'm not saying that the next elder uh, that you call can't look, think, and behave just like you. We need to be wary of tokenism because that is just as unhelpful as being insular as a group. But what I'm wanting you to ponder is this. What kind of pastor, what kind of man of God can serve you as you are, but can also lead you where you need to be? What, what qualities should we look for in the next man that we call? Who will be an aid and friend to Pastor Wynn as they serve us and lead us together? Who will help us to be strengthened in biblical doctrine and lead us in making disciples of all nations, of all backgrounds? Let this be on your minds, brothers. Again, I have no question. I have no answer for you. Think about these things, though. You are ultimately the ones who will call the next man. You. Yes, with oversight from Pastor Wynn, of course. But you. You are responsible for who you call. Think upon these things. One last issue that we touched on in one extent is our culture, primarily our church culture. I've already said some words about this, so I won't rehash them. But I do want you to think about this. What kind of church culture do you want to create at Grace Baptist? What do you want to be known for as a church? There are a few ways that we can pre present this issue. For example, the majority of you have young families. For the most part, we are a very young church that has uh, fully transitioned into parenthood. This isn't a bad thing, but we need to be cautious here. Often with our churches, uh, like us, our demographics guide the decisions of where the church goes and what our brand is. That's a horrible term, but it, it has a ring of truth to it. One error that becomes very dangerous for churches like us is to make our identity about the well-being of our children or family by becoming the family church. We could have the tendency to focus our ministerial efforts in ways that, are merely, uh, that merely benefit our children or our family rather than in all the ways that Christ has called us to. Now, of course, our children are one of our primary influences of discipleship and witnessing, and we do need to take them into consideration for outreach. They should be included in our decisions. But in roughly 10 to 12 years, the youngest of our children will not be dazzled by vacation Bible school no matter how spectacular I want it to be. Bible drill and Sunday school material are all great resources for teaching our children, but they don't last forever. They do grow up. They need to be satisfied in the Word. Think about it this way, brothers. What happens when Carter becomes a teenager? What happens when Hannah starts to drive? Terrifying thought, I'm sure. What happens when William gets his first job? What happens when Peyton goes off to college? Now, when I said that, that sounded like a movie title. 
in 20 <laughs> in 20 or so years when our children are out of the house and possibly in other cities and states what happens to us as members where will we be what happens to you and the church after all the time and effort we spent into training and guiding our children what happens once our only discipleship project is done is a typical thing for churches to go through cycles, sure. But far too many churches don't prepare for when their children leave the church. Again, I leave this problem unanswered so that you can begin to think about these things. Once all the kiddos are gone, what kind of church are you going to be? Another danger is how we interact with those who already aren't in our stage of life with us. Many of us have friends and acquaintances that are in similar phases of life as we are, and we should engage them if they are not believers. And we should praise God for whoever he brings our way. But if you're anything like me and Mary, I'm sorry, sweetheart, throwing us underneath the bus, we don't have a lot of unbelievers that are in our immediate circles of influence, of friendships. We have to be more intentional with our neighbors and coworkers because we don't have anything else. Literally, you guys are our only friends. That's kind of sad. I mean, don't don't get me wrong. I love you guys. But think about it. If this is it, how can we grow? Maybe for us as a church, maybe to counteract our demographic, and again, this is thinking out loud in some ways, in our church, we should start to engage more young adults, people who aren't in our church, and also with the elderly. Again, I'm just brainstorming, and I want us to begin thinking about this for ourselves, though. But where we are in our life setting will not remain. We will not always be a church filled with children. Unless we take bold, confident strides to reach all peoples, peoples who are not immediately in our church, even peoples that do not currently make up our church, then we might be missing an opportunity in growth and sanctification. It is far easier to get your friends to come to church, but it will demand more of us to purposely engage with the group that is not like us or has the same age of our kids. Brothers, I don't want to labor this too much, but we don't need to labor for what we currently are. Labor and strive to reach what you are not. What we are will come more easily. And by God's grace and by uh, just in his providence, those things will come. But we should hear the call to labor for that which is harder. Labor for those who are truly outside of our reach naturally. But to do it for God's glory. Brothers, what we are and practice as a church makes up our identity and our culture. Suburban family churches are churches that God has and will continue to use for his glory. We should not be ashamed to be a suburban family church, by no means. But imagine if we took the next step to go beyond where we currently are. Imagine if we took up the call of Christ to deny ourselves in order to serve others that are not like us or those who are not in our circles. Imagine if we, as a church, took up the charge to do all to do all that Christ has commanded. Brothers, are you content with being a suburban family church? Yes, you can have impact for Christ in that position, 
but ponder upon what Christ has called us to, what he's called us to do. Think about these things, brothers. Christ's command is not far off that we cannot do them. God has given us a command to obey, and so we should, full, uh, we should follow that and obey that to the fullest and highest calling. Amen? So with these three issues, brothers, ministry, future ministry contracts, and this changing, very turbulent and scary world, our leadership transitions, and our culture as a church, these are important for us to begin pondering. As for me, I, as I thought about these things for the past few weeks, and these have been on my mind for some time, brothers, when I think about these things, I'm going to be very honest with you. I get scared. I get very nervous. I began to be anxious. I worry about the ministry and what the church will look like in just a few months with things being so uncertain. And we've been blessed and given much with this new location, but when much is given, much is required. And as I thought about our context and our Christian calling in the church, I, I thought that Philippians 4 would be a good place for us to end and to ponder, really, for a moment before we leave. So if you would, everyone, let's turn to Philippians 4. Philippians chapter 4. These are Paul's final words, his final appeals to the Philippians. Paul's final words to the Philippians are the natural conclusion to what one reads in the first three chapters. In Philippians 1, we are reminded of Paul's desire, uh, his, di- his dire condition in jail. But remarkably, in those conditions, he is able to proclaim the gospel in this state and have profound influence for the kingdom. We also see in chapter 2 how Paul directs Christians to follow Christ's example of himself by dying to himself so that we might be sanctified and glorified like him. Just as our God divested himself of all of his rights and emptied himself to, to become like us for our salvation, he was risen again by the power of God in heaven that we might be raised with him in the new heavens and the new earth. Lord, that is the pat- brothers, that is the pattern that we partake in. That is the pattern that we pattern our lives as Christians in. So just as Christ gave himself to be humiliated in order to be exalted for our salvation, we are also to humble ourselves in our trials that we might glorify God in obedience to him. In chapter 3, Paul emphasizes his own example in his ministry to Philippians. Paul himself put down his old life. He counted it as dung that he might obtain the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Even in the midst of his dire condition, Paul had an unwavering confidence in the Lord's mission for the church. Paul concludes his letters with these words in Philippians 4, verse 11. Verse, verse 1. Stand firm in the Lord. Stand firm in the Lord. 
Brothers, as I continue my study of Scripture, I am more and more amazed at Paul's words to the Philippians here. Imagine what the Philippians may think of their once magnificent leader being bound in jail because of Christ's mission. Paul was the perfect teacher of churches of the church's mission. He grew the church through the gospel ministry. He strengthened it through uh, he strengthened the church through his example and teaching. And he practiced and commanded others to do all of Christ's commands that he exemplified. Even when it was hard, even when it was difficult, even when it got him into a persecuted position. And it landed him in jail. To my natural sensibilities, brothers, I would think that the church's mission at this point was going nowhere. If I was in the context of seeing my world dissolve around me, I would not be as confident as Paul is here. To stand firm. But the fact is, our current situation at Grace Baptist is very similar to Paul's circumstances here with the Philippians. How we serve and minister in this world is changing day by day. For the Philippians, they were fearful of Paul's condition in prison. It it was a sign of their own dire estate as a church. For us, we have to figure out how to possibly serve in this frustrating and difficult new era in which we are living. For the Philippians, they had constant leadership change. Uh, Possibly what is evident in what was taking place with Timothy and Epaphroditus in Philippians 2. For us, when we are, we are on the horizon of trying to find a new pastor. For the Philippians, they had to learn from Paul not to give into a certain cultural practices or allegiances to Judaizers. For us, we have to learn to serve others not like ourselves and go beyond where we are immediately comfortable. In these ways and more, we should see ourselves in the Philippians. And so when we hear the words of Paul, stand firm in the Lord... He is telling us, he is telling the Philippians to remember our mission in the midst of the unknown, in the midst of the scary, in the midst of the difficult. Paul tells us to stand firm. But not only that, brothers, not only tells us to stand firm, he tells us in verse 4 for our passage to rejoice. with all that goes around them, with all the horizons upon them, Paul says, rejoice. Rejoice. Brothers, I have to be honest with you. When I see the world around us as it is, when I see what has to take place in the coming months, as a church with all the issues we've mentioned, when I see the great work that still has to be done, I'm intimidated. I'm intimidated. But when I see the unknown river before us, I don't want to rejoice. To put it bluntly, I am anxious, scared of what the future holds for us. I am terrified of failing myself. I am fearful, anxious, stressed out. Maybe some of you are like this as well with what is taking place in our world, what is taking place in your own lives was taking place even in this church of where we might be going. But brothers, praise God for verses 5 and 6. The Lord is at hand. 
do not be anxious about anything. But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Brothers, our God is coming back. He is at hand. He has not left us to ourselves to do his mission. We have to, we have to know. We have no need to be fearful of that unknown river. Yeah, we might have a few bumps and bruises on the way, but stand firm, brothers, and rejoice. Even when it looks scary out there. And in, in here, we can stand firm. Our God is with us, and he will be with us in eternity. And that's why we pray. This life of ours, our moment in history, all this scary stuff that is happening in the midst, where I am truly worried about what is going to happen to my daughter when she gets to be my age. What's church going to look like for her? Some of y'all are a little bit older. For me, I'm just starting this out. I'm scared. But brothers... This life, this is just another paddle along the stream. With our God at our side, with our God in heaven, we can not only stand firm, but we can rejoice. Why can we rejoice even in the midst of what we have seen tonight? All the problems that are upon our minds. Because those problems of the world and this transition that we are about to face as a church... They cannot break through the peace of God. In verse 7, we see two things, if we would. Verse 7, we see two things about God's peace as it relates to us experientially. This peace guards us. It guards us. It guards our hearts and our minds. So no anxiety, worry, or woe can truly harm us. And we also see that our hearts and our minds are in Christ. They're in Christ. I love that little preposition in. Miss Bunny, circle that one. Study it. It's a, it's a preposition that tells us something spatially of where something is. It is in this context that our minds and our hearts are in Christ. This is profoundly comforting, brothers, because Paul in Philippians 2, uh, Philippians 2 declares that Christ has been exalted and is higher than all other creatures in both heaven and on earth. And that term exalted is just another term for Christ's ascension into glory, where he now sits in absolute glory and strength. As we saw in Matthew 28, he has all authority and power in heaven and on earth given to him. And he is in heaven above ruling. Brothers, where are our minds and our hearts? Are they here in earth? Are they in this domain? Or are they in Christ? What does our text say? It is guarded our peace of God. It guards our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. Do we see Paul's imagery here? Not only is my peace guarded by God himself, but it is in the possession of the Christ who is outside of myself. The peace that I experience in my inner being cannot be contingent on the things in this world or even in me. 
Because my Christ is not in this world. He is in glory. And that is where my peace comes from and where my heart and my soul, my fears and my anxieties are extinguished because they cannot pierce through the power of Christ Jesus. God's peace is that inward contentment that comes despite what we see around us and what may be on the horizon. This peace is a resolute confidence that God is with us and that God is for us. Brothers, our God has been with us in the most disturbing and difficult of times in this church. He's been with us for 2,000 millennia. He's not given up on us yet. He's been with this church for 20 years. 20 years of hard labor. Amen, brother? 20 years of hard labor. It's been hard labor since I've gotten in. 20 years. God has been faithful and will be faithful to you in this transition as he has the others. And he will be faithful to us and he will guide us and direct us in our peace into the unknown. Brothers, now I'm preaching to myself. When I am anxious in this life, my mind and my heart can be put to ease because my peace, my confidence that God is with me, is guarded by Christ himself, not me. God, Christ himself, guards my peace, not me. When I am anxious in this life, my heart is put to ease because Christ guards my peace. The one who has all authority in this world. The one who upholds this world even in the midst of chaos. The one who will uphold us as a church in this transition over that horizon and wherever we go. He is the one who guards my peace. Brothers, it is a wonderful and freeing thing to know that my peace and my anxiety are not in my hands. It is absolute joy to know that whatever comes our way, whether in this transition or anything else, our peace is not in our hands. Our peace is in Christ's hands, the one who has all authority in heaven. Oh, brothers, this is why Paul says to rejoice. This is why we can rejoice when the peace of God surpasses our understanding, when my peace is properly taken outside of my reach. When it's taken outside of my reach, the only response is joy. So just as my peace is in Christ's hands, so is my joy. Brothers, your joy as well. Your joy is not found here. Your contentment is not found here. Your strength is not found here. It is in Christ alone. So with this peace of God understood, we can see why Paul gives his final exhortation in verses 8 and 9. With knowing and believing that our peace is in Christ, that he holds it and is outside of our reach, then we can actually live that out without this constant fear of failing. Paul says this, finally, brothers, verses 8 and 9. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. 
what you have learned and received and heard and seen and mean. Practice these things. And the God of peace will be with you. So in this passage, Paul tells the Philippians to do two things. To ponder certain things and to practice certain things. The word think there, it means to have our minds dwell on, to, to have it churn in our minds. Paul essentially gives a list of six common virtues to meditate upon. Truth, honor, justice, purity, uh, loveliness, praiseworthiness, or commendability. These virtues are summarized by the phrase, if there is any excellence, an excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise. What Paul is having the Philippians contemplate and have their minds think upon are these virtuous things because he wants them to practice those virtuous things. Brothers, doing an action or achieving a goal in the biblical way requires proper meditation and prayer. Paul could have very easily said, follow my lead, do as I do, practice the things I show you. But Paul is a better teacher than that. He moves his students, his audience, to think upon what they are doing and in the manner in which they achieve their goal. It's part of the process that I want us to see tonight, to think to think about what is to happen, but also to meditate on how we achieve our goals, how we achieve these issues that are at hand, how we are to accomplish the tax that has been given us to do, but to do it in the biblical way, that we just don't go with the flow, that we tackle it head on with the power of God in Christ Jesus. What they learned and received from Paul was the gospel of Christ, what we see in verse 9. They've heard and seen through Paul the radical contentment and peace that Christ brings to those who believe. The Philippians know the gospel of peace with God through Christ. And they know and have seen how that fundamentally changed believers, as exemplified by Paul himself. So for the Philippians, they were so filled with the knowledge of Christ's peace that they now live lives that reflect Christ's peace. This is why Paul reaffirms this peace of God again. If we practice these things, living the realities of the gospel itself, the God of peace will be with you. This isn't a statement holding out the peace of God as the prize. It's not if you do certain things, you'll finally have peace. No, nothing like that. The peace of God begins. The peace of God begins our Christian life through believing the gospel of peace. Christian joy sustains our life through meditation on Christ and His goodness. And the peace of God culminates through our growing deeper and deeper in the peace that Christ gives. So what we can say is that peace and joy marks the Christian life, beginning, middle, and end. Even in the midst of great turmoil, which we are promised in the Word, if we are given over to Christ Himself, we will have joy. Yes, these things can and will be tough at times. But Paul knew this reality himself. He knew life can be desperately hard and difficult. He faced similar challenges to what we face today. But he learned the secret to be content in facing abundance and need, as the Lord called. He was able to have peace in this life because it was Christ himself that strengthened him. This is why we don't despair, brothers. No matter what comes our way, instead of out inside or outside of the church, we can be content and at peace because our Christ is with us and He guards our peace. Brothers, we have a few things in the church 
that, we sh- that should be on our minds. We have concerns outside the church that are surely on our minds. We are in a transition that will bound to have a few bumps and bruises along the way. It's natural. And, but we should prepare ourselves as a church to deal with these issues head on. But brothers, I say this to myself, if you're anything like me, we do not need to needlessly fill ourselves with worry or anxiety, as I am often prone to do. All we need to do is follow the example of Paul. He, in his contentment in Christ, showed us how to have peace in the midst of turbulent and scary times. He knew where his peace was and who held it. He knew how to experience this for himself. Brothers, think upon the gospel. Think upon the gospel. Think upon how he, in his sovereignty and providence, is directing all of the events of history, even now, this global, horrific scale that truly terrifies me, even in the small here at home. He's in control of that for his glory. Think upon these things. Think how he's the one who gives us growth and strength as a church. Think upon how he is the one uh, who will never leave us or forsake us. See how he uses the simple means of prayer and meditation to form us more and more in the pattern and likeness of our Christ. Brothers, when we give ourselves to think upon these things, when we give ourselves to think upon the peace that is ours in Christ Jesus, the cares and concerns that we face will not overtake us. The unknown horizons that we have as a church won't shake us. We can stand firm. We can stand firm as the body of Christ, no matter what this world may throw our way. And the reason this is so is because our God is our peace. There's one word that you take away tonight. Let peace be it. Peace, brothers. We have that. Let's live it. And the reason this is so, that we have peace, is because God is our peace and he gives us peace. And that is why we can stand for him. And that is why we can rejoice. We have our God and he has us. All we must do is walk in that peace as he has supplied for us. Brothers, all we can do, all we can do is to walk in joyful contentment and peace that he supplies. Brothers, may we begin to ponder over and practice that peace that is ours in Christ Jesus, even as we are about to approach that upper river. Brothers, in pondering and practicing the gospel of the peace of Jesus Christ, may the peace of God be with you all. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are the God who gives us peace. That, Lord, our peace is outside of ourselves. And, Lord, we have no fear and anxiety, but only joy. Lord, we thank you that you are the one who can take the cares and the turbulence of this world and to turn it into joyful praise to your name. Lord, what a God we serve who can do that. Lord, may we be a prayerful, 
praiseworthy and joyful and firm people for your glory and help us to do the mission that you have called us to do in Christ and for his glory. Amen.